For the summer, we're working our way through a section of the book of James. It talks about the good life. And the good life being deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. What do you think of when you think of the good life? James, what James pictures is a little bit different than what we picture, but when you think of the summer, you do think of the good life, don't you? Some of us like fishing, spending time in nature, cookouts. We associate the good life with naturally with things that we enjoy doing, things that please us, that give us pleasure, and that's appropriate. But the Bible has some interesting and somewhat provocative things to say about desires and pleasures. Look what it says. We're James chapter 4, 1 through 2. We're working our way through James 3 through James 4. Think about the good life. But he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? That's a good question, isn't it? What causes fights and quarrels among you? At home? Within marriage? With your neighbor? Your children? What causes fights and quarrels among you? How would you answer that question? If he'd stop doing that. She drives me nuts when she does this. I think we could come up with a lot of answers. Look, Look what James says. Don't they come from your desires? Literally, that word is pleasures. Doesn't it come from your desires or pleasures? that battle within you. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. It all comes down to desires. Again, the word for desires, it's translated desires. It's, it's pleasures. It comes from the word from which we get the word hedonism. Hedonism is kind of an addiction to pleasure. Hedonistic is some is a culture or a people that just lives for pleasure. And that's the word. Um, it's associated with feelings of enjoyment, something pleasant to the senses. And again, it doesn't determine what direction we get these pleasures from. We get dis- pleasures from diverse directions. Sexual desire. It can be material enjoyment. It can be coveting another's possessions. The, the word desires, it's something that is not necessarily bad. It's a passion or a longing. And it can be bad or can be good. James indicates in this passage that frustrated desires are responsible for fights and quarrels. Again, it says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And when we think about it, this makes sense, doesn't it? Makes sense, doesn't it? Think about why we have fights and quarrels. If you're having a conflict, it's, well, let's say we're having a conflict. It's not really about what you're doing. It's about my response to what you're doing. I don't like the fact that you're doing this and that you're not doing that. So the conflict is maybe triggered by something you are doing, but really it's my reaction to something you're doing. Because the fact is, you could be doing that thing, and a different person doesn't have an issue with it. And if they don't have an issue with it, there's not a conflict. So conflict is triggered by things that we do, but really it's inflamed by our reaction 
to one another. That's, it's about how I feel about what you're doing or how I feel about what you're not doing. So therefore, this kind of conflict between us, what James says, it really starts here. There's a couple words, interpersonal and intrapersonal. Intrapersonal means that which is within a person. Interpersonal is that which is between people. And what James is saying, what causes these fights, these interpersonal fights? Intrapersonal fights. It's about the pleasures that battle within. We want something, but I don't get it. When I don't get it, I kill or covet. And I can't have what I want, so I quarrel and fight. That's what James indicates. The truth is that it's very difficult to live with inner feelings of dissatisfaction. And this is what James is pointing at. Now, he's not pointing to a secular context in this letter. He's pointing to the church. Selfishness can cloak itself in Christian garb. And what's happening in these, to these people to whom James is writing is there's a lot of selfishness within the church, but it's being cast as, I am only concerned for the truth of God. And But it's cloaked, but if you peel off that veneer, you know what it's about? I don't like it when you do X. I want you to do Y, and that's why I have trouble. And so there's a lot of infighting and quarreling and fighting, and everybody's pointing their fingers at one another. It's his fault. It's her fault. And James says, you know what? And you've seen this before. You point a finger. How many fingers are pointing back? This is really the issue. It's inside. What causes fights and quarrels? We don't like not to have what we want. Isn't that it? We want what we want. And we don't want what we don't want. And when we are exposed to frustrated desires, it's hard for us to handle. We blame somebody. We blame ourselves. We blame somebody else. That makes sense, doesn't it? Now, the question is, how do you deal with that? And that's where James goes on. Let's talk about the problem. Let's make sure we understand the problem clearly before we go on to talk about a solution. The problem with desires is it forms a fatal attraction. That's what it says in the Bible. The Bible has a lot to say about desires. With desires, you can't live with them and can't live without them. You know, if you don't want anything, then... There's a way they talk about, they used to deal with some forms of mental illness. They did a lobotomy. And the lobotomy was penetrating that part of the brain, scrambling that, that promotes intense desire. So if you scramble that, then you have people that kind of live in a vegetative state. They really don't want anything. And that's a way to deal with desires, but that's a little extreme. How do we deal with desires short of that? Uh, it seems like, well, let's see, let's see what the problem is. Titus chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. Paul writing, it says, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. We tend to think that pleasure is our doing what we want. The Bible spins this a little bit differently. Listen to what Paul says. At one time, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. You know what he's saying? 
pleasures are enslaving. We can be in bondage to pleasures. It's not that I can do what I want. It's that I can't tolerate it when I can't do what I want. That's what James is saying. Pleasures are enslaving. And it's and that's the problem that created. We think we're free to do whatever we want. And the real issue is that we are not free not to do what I want, not to do what we want. Well, the Bible talks about contentment. There's only one thing more powerful than being content because I have what I want. That's natural, isn't it? Do you know what supernatural is? Being content when I don't have what I want. And that's what Paul talks about. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. God's strength, then, and we'll try to figure out how to tap that, allows us to experience a form of contentment when our cupboards are full and when our cupboards are bare. Would you agree with me? That's a supernatural type of contentment, a supernatural type of joy. We're imprisoned by pleasure. Here's a story in Thomas Costain's history, The Three Edwards. He talked about Reynold III. He was a 14th century duke in what is now called Belgium, had a brother, Edward. And Edward and Reynold were kind of competing for the throne. When the father died, Reynold, he was also known as Crassus. And Crassus is a Latin word for fat. And he was obese, very heavy. Uh, after a violent quarrel, Reynold's younger brother, Edward, led a successful revolt and took Reynold into custody. He captured him, but he didn't kill him. Instead, he built a room around Reynold in Newark Castle, and promised that he could regain the title and property as soon as he could leave the room. Simple enough, and the doors were normal size. All he had to do to gain the throne, to gain the property, was leave this house, this room, built around him in the basement of the castle. Now, the problem was the doors were normal size, but Reynolds wasn't normal size. And he couldn't fit out the door. True. So what? all he had to do was lose weight. But everyday Edward would bring down, have brought down a large assortment of goodies and push it inside the room. And all Reynolds had to do was to push him back out. People would accuse Edward of cruelty. He says, I'm not imprisoning my brother. My brother can leave whenever he wants. All he has to do is just control his desires. What do you imagine happened to Reynold? It was years. Edward died in battle. And Reynold was let out of this self-imposed prison. And he lived less than a year. He had gained much weight and his health was poor. It gives us this picture that that we can be imprisoned by desires. And again, there's different kinds of things, different kinds of pleasures that we can be imprisoned by. And it's not, the problem isn't just that we lose self-control. The problem with being addicted to pleasure 
Well, look what James says. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. James' problem with living for pleasure is that it creates interpersonal conflict. If you don't do what I want, at some point, if it's severe enough, we're going to have problems. And, and that's what's occurring, and that's James' concern, that the unity of the church that he's writing to is being compromised because everybody wants what they want, and they can't tolerate not having what they want, and this is what James goes after. This is his concern. Well, that's easy enough. Just say no. Just say no. That's easy. And it's, it's not that easy. Not that easy when we're dealing with pleasures and desires. Look what Paul says in Romans. I would not have known what coveting really was. Coveting, again, is another word for desiring. When we think of coveting, we think of something bad. Coveting is a neutral word. It's just a passion or longing for something that we really can't live without. It can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on the context. And so when he says, I would not have known what coveting really was, He's just talking about a strong desire. The Bible had said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. What the, the commandment, number 10, don't covet? Now again, it's don't covet your neighbor's wife or his goods. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's life. And what Paul goes on to say is that, okay, what happens when you try to control that? Say a desire is being inflamed by something that your neighbor has that you want. It might be his car. It might be his... Yeah, it could be a number of things. What happens when you try to control those desires? You're coveting. You want this thing. So the natural reaction is to try to control it. I've got to contain this. I've got to, I got to try not to want this thing. And what Paul says, that trying to control coveting is like pouring water on a grease fire. What happens when you pour water on a grease fire? It's a logical thing to do, right? There's a grease fire. Take some water, splash it on. Oh, that works, doesn't it? No, it doesn't work, does it? You ever try that? Okay, good. <laughs> um, it's, it spreads it. And what he says is the same thing. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said do not covet. And then it says... But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. What it seems to say is when you earmark something and try to gain control over it, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to want that thing. It actually makes it worse. That's what this is saying. Wrestling it to the ground causes it to become stronger. So the just-say-no approach to desires doesn't really work. Some of you say, hey, Mike, no, yes, it does. Yes, it does. I've been able to dominate some of my desires. And it's possible. It really is possible to stop doing something. But that can create other problems, can it? I was able to get control over this. Why can't you? Ah, you're not quite... The man I am. What's that called? Self-righteousness. You know what? Self-righteousness, in Jesus' eyes, is probably worse 
than the thing you were trying to overcome. And that's the deal. Sometimes if we're successful in overcoming, we can look down our nose at all the lesser people. And that is a more virulent form of sin than control or lack of control. Um, Trying to contain desire by force of will, like throwing water on a grease fire, makes it stronger. Um, The litmus test of spirituality is usefulness. And some, those who have ascended the plane of control, sometimes a person who is very controlled is very selfish. They don't have much time for anyone else. Leave me alone. I've got my life together. Don't! Don't touch me. That kind of person is not very useful and not very Christian. The Christians can look messy, but they exist not just to keep themselves in line, but to serve other people. That's what usefulness looks like. Um, and then you might say, okay, Mike, so if you're saying that desires are enslaving and that we're not supposed to try to wrestle them to the ground, uh, then I guess I'll just let go and let God. Just let them rip and... Yeah, just let's see what happens. <laughs> um, what it says, it's not that easy. Again, with desires, I'm telling you, you can't live with them and you can't live without them. This is a thorny problem, and that's what I want to point out. It's not easy to deal with desires. That's what I'm saying. We assume just self-control. Mm-hmm. But we have to do something. Look what it says. When tempted, no one should say, James 1, God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Let me show you what this means. We went fishing uh, last week. It was in Arkansas. And we were able to feed a number of fish. Unfortunately, (laughs) weren't successful in feeding off of the fish, but we provided them with a number of delicacies, corn, that they very adeptly nibbled from the end of the hook without being embedded on the hook. So they were, or or maybe, I'm not sure it was that the fish were extremely clever. It couldn't be the fact that I'm not a very adept fisher. Anyways, so what they said, what you were to do, there was, okay, this is embarrassing. This river is stocked with brown trout. Stocked. With, it's not just occurring naturally. They dammed the river upriver. It's famous for brown trout. And people go there, catch 60 and 70 fish. Some aren't as successful. <laughs> what you do, you understand what you do with fishing, don't you? And then you put on the fish, and you, and fish can exist in safe places, but what you do is you just, maybe that's the problem, maybe it's, it's this kind of, anyway, okay. You try to drag them away and entice them. What it says, when we are tempted, we're tempted to say, God, you're tempting me. And what James says, mm, that's not it. Each one is tempted when he's carried away by his own desires, he's dragged away and enticed, and we're in a safe place, and we see that thing that we want, and we do what the fish didn't do to my hook. 
but we go after it. And that's what Imdinsicate. And if this was all that it was, then, well, look what it says. Picture here, verse 15, then after desire has conceived, desire gives birth. It gives birth to sin. And that's bad enough. You know what the problem here is? Sin grows up. So here's, and when it grows up, it gives birth to death. Here's the image. You're dragged away and enticed by something. You bite on it. It doesn't become very bad right now. In the beginning, pretty mild. I'm not addicted to this thing. But then desire conceives. It gives birth to sin. And sin doesn't stay little. It ends up expanding, growing. Sin grows up. And when it's full grown, it brings forth death. So when you try to wrestle it to the ground, it grows. And when you leave it alone, it how do you deal with sin? How do you deal with desires? Isn't that where sin begins? Would you agree with me? Would you agree with me? Acts begin in desires. How do we deal with desires? They're tricky. Let's see what the Bible has to say. What's the solution? And it's important because we could talk about managing desires, but if you have a good what and know how, you end up, well, leaving the White River without any fish. (laughs) Or living a life and not really being able to manage desires in in any kind of appropriate way or helpful way. Look what it says. Second Peter chapter one. We did a series on this, the path of righteousness. You might recall the verse, I'm going to read it. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. This is a really good passage, by the way. It goes from beginning to end. It talks about what it is that gives the power, what the power produces, and if there's no fruit, why? It really is very complete. I'm going to start again. Look at this passage. Very interesting passage. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil, and there's our word, desire. I'm going to read that again. There's, this says a lot of stuff here. Really important passage. I'll just read it once more. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. And we're gonna we'll look at the, the rest of that passage in a, in a little bit. But what we see here are a couple things. God must free us from bondage in order to dis, to escape. God's gonna free us. We can't free ourselves. And He frees us with 
Well, what? What does God give you that allows you to break free from the control of desires? He gives you commands, right? Commands are tricky because what it says in Romans, if you take a command and you try to force or comply, it actually makes the problem worse. You know what God gives you? Promises. Do you want to manage desires effectively? You must grab promises. This is not vague here. It's very specific, very precise. God's glory is his regard. His goodness, glory and goodness, bring about God extending promises to you. If you grab these promises and treat desires with promises, it promises you will participate in the divine nature, share in God's strength, and you will escape the corruption in the world caused by, you know what it says? It says evil desires, but the word evil is not there. It's not just describing evil desires. It's describing desires. Desires don't have to be evil to be controlling. Do you understand what I mean? That's a problem. Sometimes we think the problem is evil desires. I could really want something. Well, this isn't a problem. I want this thing, but this thing is good. And I'm going to force you to give me what's good. Is that a problem? Yeah. Yes, it is. It creates hate and hating one another. See, the problem isn't evil desires. You know what the problem is? I will live for my pleasure. And you know what I'll do? If I call that pleasure good, I can have it, right? And what's happening in James is this is existing within a church setting. I just want you to learn this and that, and I want you to come to a better church. And so what James is saying, there is selfishness within the church. Well, that can't be. Can it selfishness within the church? Yeah. And why would that be? Why is there selfishness within the church? And why is it rampant? Could it be that, by and large, we don't use the solution? What is the solution to dealing with desires? Commandments or commitments? Promises. Promises. We make a big deal about promises and commitments because we need them to deal with desires. That's what he says. Through them we participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. I'm just going to throw a point here. Um, how much time do you spend thinking about God's promises to you? And again, this is not a, a load. I'm not going to put a load on you. Because what we tend to think is, you know what, Mike? I think that it's possible to overemphasize God's promises, isn't it? It's possible to overemphasize promises because we really need to deal with sin, Mike. Now, and I'm not blowing this up, you know, it's kind of chuckly, like, but I'm not 
I'm not being facetious here, because is sin an issue? Yeah. Where does sin come from? A desire. How does God tell us to deal with desires? Promises. If we're going to take sin seriously, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take promises and we're going to use them in dealing with desires. If we think that I can control myself, that is treating sin casually. Sin can can push commandments away. In fact, it, it eats them and becomes stronger. Sin has a very difficult time living with applied divine promises. It shrinks or it just controls them, keeps them in a place where they're normal. Again, you're not going to be without desires. We've said it before. Desires and emotions are like little kids in the back seat. We've talked about this. You know, you're going to take trips this summer and, I want desire, I want. And then there's a couple of things you don't want to do with, and that kid is like desire. Desires are loud. They're not quiet. They're kind of like this. I want Oh, that's it. You know, you throw, throw them out the back door. You know, you don't do that with kids. You know, but that's sometimes what we try to do with desires. I'm going to get rid of it. I don't want that thing. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. God knows that you want it. So some of us, we don't get rid of the desires, and, you know, the kids are in the back. I want Okay, you drive. Okay? You know, so we, we give, we give the, the desires the steering wheel. And we allow them to direct us to wherever they want us to go. And with desires, you can't throw them out the back door and you can't give them the steering wheel. What can you do with desires? You can, what? What it's saying to manage desires, you've got to give you, you've got to take what God gives you to manage desires. What does God give you to manage desires? His promises, his commitments. To the degree you become adept at using those commitments, desires don't go away, but they become a little less intense, a little less demanding, give you more choice. The way it seems to work. Um, the problem is not with what I want. The problem is that I want what I want, be it sacred or secular. The problem is not evil desires. We are just committed to getting what we want. That's the problem, James points out here. Um, what causes fights and quarrels among you, James says? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Again, the problem is not just that we want, but that we just don't want one thing. And that's part of the problem as well. See, if I want one thing and I want something from you, I want what you have. But I also want to be a good person, so I don't want to push you to get what I want. And that's what ends up happening. It's the desires that battle within us. We don't want just one thing. We want what we want, but we don't want to be a bad person in getting what we want. And these things vie, and we try to, to control that thing. And, and you know what we end up doing? And this is backwards. We gaze at the desires and try to manage them. And we glance at God. We gaze at desires and glance at God. And we glance at God just to say, I'm sorry, I'll get this. Be, yeah, be just a minute. 
I did, just give me, a, give me some time here. <laughs> and that's backwards. You know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to give it his commitments. You know what, God, I want about a zillion things here. I want security, but I want faith. I want to be alone, but I want to be with people. I want to be heard, but I want to speak. I want a number of different things. I can't figure me out sometimes. But you tell me that you're in me and with me and good's ahead of me, guaranteed. So even though I can't manage myself, I guess that's okay, isn't it? Because I don't need to control this in order to have contact with you. And if I can have contact with you, it's easier for me to accept the fact that I can't control this. You know, isn't that funny how that works? See, there's, a, there's an answer for desires, but it isn't control. It's contact. It's contact. You can want what you want. Don't try to control it yet. Hold his hand. Grab his promise. And you know what? The need to control is less if you're not alone. You understand what I'm saying? That's hard to learn. It's hard to learn. Without understanding how, self-control is the default management tool. You know what the Bible, interestingly in the Bible? Oh, look at this verse. Let's read the rest of it. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control. Self-control isn't at the beginning. It's the result of faith and knowledge in what? Promises. How are you thinking, Mike, my self-control is nowhere to be found? You have promises in your hand. Faith in promises. What it's saying, you grab onto promises, and you're going to find, where did that self-control come from? It came because you grabbed the promise. That's the secret. The secret. And then self-control comes along. Without a how, the default what is self-control. And that doesn't work. And that's why I like this passage. It's a good passage, isn't it? Very complete. It says a lot of stuff in a very short space. Um, and um, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Signs that you're on the right path? How do you know you're on the right path in managing desires? What you're going to find slowly, slowly, faith and commitments. Well, look at the, look at the list. Look at them. Add to your faith goodness. You'll find goodness starting to well up. Goodness, knowledge. You'll be learning about God. Knowledge, self-control. You'll find a capacity to not throw the kid, the emotion, out the back door, nor give him the steering wheel. You'll be able to understand what you want and to tolerate the fact that you don't need to get it right now to be some form of self-control. It goes on to talk about to self-control perseverance. You know that little kid in the back thing? Ah, you know that one. 
If you turn around, well, don't turn around while you're driving. <laughs> you heard about the story, didn't you? About the, uh, I think this really happened. Uh, they were driving a camper, and the guy, they took a break, and the, and the guy went in the back, and he was laying in one of the beds in the back of the camper, and and he fell asleep. And then his his wife was tapping on his shoulder. And it felt like the camper was still moving. And and she, he said, honey, what are you, what are you doing? She said, it's okay, the cruise control is on. <laughs> no idea why I brought that up now. I said, no, I just... I know it made sense just a minute ago. I said, this... <laughs> Signs that you're on the right path. Um, these things start to come together. Perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness, love. These come as the result of faith and knowledge and goodness. They started to rise up. What are the signs that you're on the wrong path? Look what it says. But if anyone does not have these things, so if there's no faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, brotherly kindness, and love, if these things aren't present, what's the problem? Not disciplined enough, not enough control. Look what it says. If anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. What is it that gets in the way of godliness? You forgot what God told you. We forget what God tells us about sin, that we've been cleansed from our past sins. Because if we forget that we've been cleansed from our past sins, what do we try to do? Control ourselves. And if we control ourselves, what happens? It gets worse. And if it gets worse, we become more hateful and hating. It all goes down to the thing that he gives us, promises. Make room in your mind for God's commitments. Become brilliant in them. Learn them. We, and one thing you could do, the Ten Commitments, it's really ten of the promises that feel very important. And if it's been a while since you've gone through the commitments, come back through. When we began to do hope mail, which is once per week, I said, I wonder how long, I've told you this, I wonder how long I can write about these commitments until I don't run out of material. And in the back of my mind, I said, geez, I don't, I don't know. It's like 255. I'm still going. And it's, and it's, and the reason why we send this out, and it's on the website, you can get hope mail. Why do we do this? By the book, because commitments are critical. They're the things that as we become more brilliant in them, we'll find, and Joel, basically come on up and sing a last song, we'll find that they provide us with that which will allow us to deal with desires in an effective, balanced manner. Father, thank you for being the prototypical father. You are the one who 
everything that we long for in a father you are. None of us have perfect dads. We don't have them now, and we're not perfect dads. But there is a perfect dad, and thank you that, that you are the father to dads. And a lot of weight rests on dad's shoulders. Uh, creates fatigue. Sometimes dads need a dad. So I guess I ask that, that with the dads here, that you would reveal yourself as a dad to them, one who cares for them. They don't have to control everything. You are going to walk with them. Everything doesn't land on them, ultimately. There's things that we have to do. But we have a Father. Thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.